Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a show about technology and contemplating the finer details and their practical application. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we dive into how great ideas can be transformed into products and services that impact our lives. This episode is brought to you by ManyTricks, makers of helpful apps for the Mac. Visit ManyTricks, all one word, dot com slash pragmatic for more information about their amazingly useful apps. We'll talk more about them during the show. Pragmatic is supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so via Patreon. For early release, high-quality ad-free episodes, visit engineer.network slash pragmatic to learn how you can help. Thank you. Uh, I'm your host, uh, John Chigi, and today I'm joined by Ian Norman. How you doing, Ian? Great. Thanks for having me, John. Oh, it's uh, it's a pleasure. I uh, have been a longtime fan of uh, of Lonely Spec and your work, and uh, I just I couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk to you about something that I've recently gotten involved with that you know a heck of a lot more about than I do. So, um, I thought it might be fun just to talk about uh, astrophotography um, for a little while. Well, that's uh, definitely one of the things I love to talk about. Well, that's awesome. So, uh, the thing is. I think we also come at this from kind of the same premise, and the same premise. By, by that I mean, um, I started out with a, with a, a normal boring camera, and then I moved on to a DSLR, and I went from a D fifty five hundred to a D five hundred, and I was using it to take um, photos of the kids, and I and I got a D five hundred because it had good low light performance and it had a really a decent frame rate, and uh, is a very good camera. And I never even thought about astrophotography at the time. I didn't even consider, it didn't even cross my mind. I mean, I wasn't even aware of the quality of photos you could take. Uh, and then, of course, well, COVID happens and everyone's in lockdown. And like, I think most um, people with a, well, most photographers with a camera will get out the macro lens and start taking photos of things that they're allowed to actually, you know, you can't get out and about in the world. So you take photos of anything you can around the house, take a few thousand photos of the cat. And then once you're sick of that, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, I looked outside and um, I found your site and it kind of got an, a little bit inspired. And I thought I might have a, I might have a crack at some of this because this looks like fun, but I just wanted to use what I had available to me uh, rather than going and spending a lot of money on a whole bunch of different things. And I've, I've just learned you can really spend a lot of money on this stuff if you really want oh, to. Oh yeah, you can. It's uh photography in general is just not a cheap hobby. Yeah. Um but I think one of the things that uh that I like to communicate and my wife and I really like to focus on uh with our website Lonely Spec is that astrophotography can be you know within reach, I suppose. It's it's something that you can do with a regular DSLR and it doesn't necessarily require like a, a whole ton of fancy gear. Considering just that that is that sort of as our as our starting premise, I um I, I only I had a handful of lenses sort of lying around and um I had recently invested in a like a two hundred to five hundred mil um uh, telephoto zoom. And it's a beautiful lens, but I meant to get it for sport and I thought, well, I might try and take a photo of the moon uh and then I tried a few planets. And then I realized sort of the limitations of that and I thought, you know what, actually I'd rather take photos of the Milky Way. So the only thing I actually have specifically bought so far anyway um, for the Milky Way was a was an ultra-wide uh, lens. Uh, but apart from that, um, I'm just trying to use what I've got. Uh, I guess 
I'm, I'm just sort of curious if you could just sort of give me a little bit of a background as to how, how you actually started down this path specifically. I'm just curious. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I've been around sort of space related stuff for a long time. Um, both of my parents, uh, worked as computer programmers or engineers on, uh, uh, the space shuttle program. Um, and so, you know, it was one of those things where if there was a space launch going on, we'd watch it on TV, you know, when I was a kid and it was just a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had that in my childhood and sort of like you, uh, I discovered astrophotography when I got my first DSLR and I realized that, oh, you know, you can take photos at night. And so I found myself trying to figure out how to hook up my DSLR to my telescope and uh, realizing that, you know, my, this is my telescope that I had when I was like 12 and it wasn't a very good one. It was not really suitable for any kind of astrophotography, but I did find uh, in a couple of internet, internet searches a method called uh, piggybacking, which is basically where you attach your camera to the back of your telescope rather than shooting through the telescope. So it's just regular lens, you know, a wide angle lens, uh, and you mount the camera onto the telescope so that it's sort of fixed to it. Mm -hmm. And the advantage of doing that was that I could use the telescope's equatorial mount to track the stars. Um, and the equatorial mount is, is basically made to rotate at the same rate as the Earth, uh, such that you can track the stars without, you know, getting them uh, without having them blur in your photograph. And once I did that, um, I was actually able to capture my first photograph of a portion of the Milky Way. And um, that's when I was, I just got hooked on it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was just like, <laughs> I would stay up super late out in my parents' driveway. And, uh, you know, just as long as I could, I could handle the cold and, and I'd run back and forth between, going inside and going outside and checking my long exposure. And um, there were a lot of uh, difficulties in trying to take a photograph in that, you know, with that method. And uh, I realized that there were a whole lot of other um, cool techniques that you could utilize to make astrophotography significantly easier. As it turns out, I probably didn't need that special equatorial mount on my tripod or on my uh, telescope rather. And, uh, and so that's sort of where the hobby sort of spawned into learning ways to make it easier, I suppose, with the equipment that I had. Um, you know, I was a kid at the time, so I didn't really have like a budget to invest in a whole lot more equipment. So I basically just stuck with my kit lens and my Canon DSLR. It was the original Digital Rebel, the 300D, mm -hmm. um, which was not very good at low light. And, um, you know, I I just... I did what I could with, with that particular camera um, until I could eventually afford to upgrade to something better. Interesting. Okay. So um, one of the things that I, I also learned in my um, just digging, diving into this is that you mentioned there the telescope that you had was not really ideally suited to astrophotography. I didn't, uh, in my naivety, I didn't realize that there's all sorts of different kinds of telescopes and each of them have different pros and cons and that's like the ones that are better for optical viewing and those op optical observing i should say 
and other ones that are better for uh, astrophotography, um, like they might be lighter, for example, and they could go on an equatorial mount, um, a few other different things. Some people say you should, shouldn't should use Dobsonians, other people swear by them. Um, and then, of course, as you mentioned, there's that the piggyback method. The one I hadn't actually heard of that, I, I'd heard of the a T-ring and an adapter specific for your DSLR. Um, but the more I dug into all of these and I sort of thought to myself, you know, to take the sort of photo I want to take of Jupiter, I think about a 16-inch Dobsonian would be nice, maybe maybe a 20-inch. And then I started realizing, oh, wow, how heavy are these things? And some people have them on caster wheels. Some people, you need two people to carry them. And I'm like, okay. And then I looked at the price tag of how $15,000, dollars for a telescope. And I'm like, okay, so let's just leave telescopes out of this, I think. <laughs> it's yeah. And I, I, I think um, that's almost exactly the thinking that I had going into it too. It was sort of like it ended up being this like huge rabbit hole um, that seemed like it could only really be solved by money when you really wanted to do, you know, especially like trying to take photographs of planets. It's that's can be an expensive hobby for sure. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I think you don't necessarily realize um, when. I, I guess before you really learn a whole lot about astrophotography, you don't realize that taking a photograph of a planet is actually significantly more difficult than, um, say, taking a photograph of uh, a nebula, you know, like the yeah. Orion Nebula or even, um, I don't know what a good, uh, another good example is. I mean, Andromeda? Yeah, Andromeda or the Milky Way. Um, most of those things are actually much larger uh, in our field of view, you know, than than a planet. A planet is a tiny little speck. Yeah. And the the Andromeda galaxy, for example, is actually larger than the moon in terms of how much of the sky that it takes up. And so that actually makes it a lot easier to photograph. Um, and it it gets easier and easier the more that you zoom out. And you realize that... Uh, you know, the Milky Way ends up being uh, something that's, it's actually fairly practical to take a photograph of with just your, uh, your regular kit lens. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, um, like I said, I had my 500 millimeter zoom and, um, I did some rough calculations and, um, I just jotted them down how many pixels across you could actually get, uh, because I've got a crop sensor. So I've got a 750 millimeter effective, um, focal length and, uh, I could get, uh, 45 pixels in diameter across for Jupiter, which when you think about how many pixels there are, um, you know, on a 20, 20.9 megapixel uh, sensor, it's really not much. And you have to really use your imagination to sort of see cloud bands. Like, And you're like, is that really a cloud? No, it's probably not. Yeah. Um, and so if you go and add teleconverters, which of course then creates more problems, um, it sort of gets to the point at which you just realize with a 2x um, teleconverter, which is going to have all sorts of problems with chromatic aberration, um, not to mention the loss of light because you're stopping it down to f11, um, you get 90 pixels across, but it'll probably be such a soft, blurry image. You may as well just, it's just not worth it. And you have to go down a telescope and you've spent so much money and it's like, okay, so... Planetary photography, yeah, not for me. Right. At least not at this point. Maybe if I win the lottery or something, I might reconsider, but not now. Yeah, nine, 90 pixels wide, you know, that's like, uh, what, something like, like rough calculation, I guess, would be about 6,000 uh, pixels total in area. So you're talking about mm. like, you know, 0.06 megapixels. So it's definitely not a whole lot of resolution when you're. No. 
doing that. And, and you would think, you would think that, oh, I have this 750 millimeter effective focal length. Like, surely that would be good enough. But yeah, <laughs> no. e- you know, e- even even with Jupiter, which is like one, you know, one of the, you know, visually brightest planets, uh, it's it's a difficult it's, it's a difficult one. Um, so yeah, I, I found myself in this same sort of boat and re- realizing that, okay, well, <laughs> there are like clearly some technical limitations to doing this stuff and some monetary limitations to being able to do this. But I, I just really love the idea of going out at night and, you know, and capturing the night sky. And um, there are a lot of techniques that astronomers, you know, uh, and, and real dedicated astrophotographers who are shooting through telescopes are using that didn't seem to really permeate into the world of like landscape astrophotography. And they seemed like techniques that were a little bit, I don't know, convoluted or out of reach of, of uh, most people, it, you know, at least initially to me, it seemed like, you know, there was all this talk and, and lingo about, uh, you know, image stacking and darks and biases and flats and like all this terminology that, uh, you know, I didn't, it, it can be sort of intimidating to, to get into it, but. Oh, for sure. But once I, I learned something about those techniques, I realized that they were actually simple enough to, uh, to actually approach from a standpoint of, of regular landscape photography that you can actually stack your landscape photos just like a, an astrophotographer or an astronomer would stack their photograph of Jupiter to try and get a clearer image with less noise and, and better sharpness. And um, so once I started utilizing those techniques, I I, I knew that I had to talk about them. So that's kind of why we started Lonely Spec was to sort of like have a place where I could almost just a place to jot down notes of of what I was learning and put it in a way that was a little bit more digestible because, you know, it took a a whole lot of learning these fancier, I guess, techniques and then distilling them down into something that I thought was fun and practical and didn't require ten thousand dollars worth of equipment. Absolutely, and uh, and uh, and, I, and I think that there's there's so much really good information on Lonely Spec, and hence you know why I, I kept going back there, and, uh, and and because of recommendations on there, particularly about my uh, uh, my Tamron eleven sixteen f two point eight DX lens. Uh, which is the one I bought specifically for Milky Way uh, photography. Um, and that's just one example. There's lots of really good stuff on there. So um, I'm glad you did put all that down there because it helped me. It's helped me a lot. Um, one of the things you mentioned, I just want to quickly circle back to, is um, you mentioned about um, like Milky Way landscape photography. Um, so for me personally, when I, it sort of took me a little while with my brain and I don't know, just, I mean, I'm an electrical engineer, I guess I kind of, I don't know. I've, I'm struggle sometimes with the artistic things. Like, am I doing art or am I not? I don't actually know sometimes, but it's, it took me a while to get my brain around the fact that there are lots of pictures of just of like the Milky way or sections of the Milky way and so on and so forth. And then I, I initially thought, well, we have the moon, we have Jupiter, we have deep sky objects and all sorts of different things. So it's like the object is, um, it, it's kind of like the subject. And uh, I suppose in, you know, in photography, we have a subject and we have a background or a backdrop. 
And in a studio, just put up a blank sheet of paper behind your subject. Maybe, I mean, not that I have a studio, but, you know, I've been to a studio. Um, and or you might use a good le- a lens with some good bokeh to sort of like blur the background and focus in on your subject so the subject pops and everything. But right. what I've learned is that um, by, just through your work and uh, a few others I've seen out there as well is that the Milky Way... Um, it's sort of it isn't exactly your subject anymore. It's kind of it's your backdrop and 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 the way you it's positioned. And if you plan your shot a certain way, then the Milky Way becomes kind of like quite possibly one of the most beautiful backdrops you could ever ask for. And it's sort of it's not really the subject anymore. And that's one of the things that I've really learned to love about it. Yeah, I think that's a really good characterization of what I like about landscape astrophotography. And it's one of those things where um, I think, you know, as a photographer that goes out to shoot at night, you realize that the night sky ends up just being, like you said, like a backdrop. It's like it's like one of the elements of what you're really actually trying to capture. And I, you know, I think that the reason that I sort of gravitated towards landscape astrophotography rather than just pure astrophotography of, of just stars and nebulae and, and stuff like that is that the, the, the subject is the earth. The subject is, uh, you know, this place that we're in and, and that really gives you a whole lot more, uh, creative license, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're shooting, uh, uh, say like the Orion Nebula, um, that's, basically going to turn out like, you know, save for some different processing techniques and stuff. There's not a whole lot in the way of composition, you know, choices. If you're just shooting the nebula, um, it's, you know, you can rotate the camera one way or another perhaps, or, you know, frame it slightly different, um, you know, crop it one way or the other, but, um, you know, there, there's, there's nothing relative to it. Mm. And, uh, that can be kind of, difficult to connect with I, I i think at least you know you see these photographs from like the hubble's the hubble space telescope that are you know beautiful uh and you know jaw dropping but it's hard to really associate like what you're seeing in those photographs with you know what it's like to actually look up at the night sky because you can't see that with your own eyes right mm-hmm. yeah so uh that's i think what really separates uh you know the the reasons why I do landscape photography um landscape astrophotography over you know pure astrophotography is because there's just so much you can do with the foreground which which is the earth and that's actually um kind of what uh inspired the name of uh the blog that we run lonely spec um in this case the lonely spec is the earth you know we're a lonely speck in uh in our galaxy it's actually based off of a carl sagan quote um from his book in the uh his book the pale blue dot yeah i wasn't i wasn't sure about that i i I thought it might have been a quote from sagan but um it's it's a very apt uh name and um and uh i just um yeah i think i think you summarize that very well i i think in the end um i'm uh, I, I think that it connects uh, the backdrop. It connects us to uh, the subject, which is different parts of of, of our planet. And uh, it just, I don't know, it's just there's something beautiful about it. And it's a unique kind of photography. And so 
I guess having said all of that, on a more practical sort of standpoint, um, I think it's probably a good idea to talk a little bit about. You sort of mentioned equatorial mounts before, and um, so at the moment, I personally do not have an equatorial mount. Um, I'm I look at them and I'm like, oh, geez, I wish I had one of those, uh, but I don't. Um, want to I guess quickly talk about why you may want to get one of those, and actually curious um, if you have one and if you use one regularly. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'd probably like to go uh, in the direction of why you wouldn't need one. Mm. And um, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, at least for the for your listeners, um, an equatorial mount is simply uh, it's a motorized camera mount or or telescope mount that rotates. With the it rotates at the sidereal rate, which is basically the same rate that the Earth rotates at. And uh, by doing that, when you mount your camera to it or your telescope to it, it uh, perfectly tracks the motion of the stars um, as the Earth rotates. So it sort of rotates in the opposite direction, so that uh, you know over time the your subject won't change and that can be very helpful in certain situations because in the case of astrophotography we're usually taking fairly long exposures and even a 20 second exposure is enough time that you'll end up with star trails in your photograph and um, you know that's just from the earth rotating so the solution to it is uh, or one of these solutions to it the hardware solution to it, I suppose, is an equatorial mount. And uh, one of the problems, I would say, with an equatorial mount is that it requires a lot of setup um, and uh, you know a bit of precision with that setup. And it's also an extra piece of gear that usually weighs as much or sometimes more than the camera that you're carrying. Um, and, you know, it, it just adds sort of complexity to the whole process. Um, and so I actually don't use one. I have one. Um, I have a small uh, star tracker, basically, is, is uh, what it's called, which are, is, I guess, maybe one of the terms that they would, uh, yeah. one of the terms that you would use for uh, an equatorial mount. Um, is a star tracker. And so I, I have one uh, by a company called Move, Shoot, Move. And I've also owned another one um, called the Vixen Polari. And, uh, you know, both of those are fairly small. Um, they're definitely not necessarily the heaviest ones. And, and there's the, they're the only ones that I would personally consider because I don't like to carry around a whole lot of gear. But uh, they have their limitations. They're not really great with super long lenses, and they're not as easy to uh, align properly before you're shooting. And so in terms of, of why I would recommend not getting them other than the fact that it's just an extra piece of equipment, it's that a lot of the advantage of using a tracking mount can be sort of emulated by other techniques that don't require any kind of physical gear. And uh, the primary technique there is image stacking. So rather than taking, say, uh, one long, like, five-minute exposure to try and get the best possible, you know, noise out of that one exposure of uh, the Milky Way, we would take 
a whole bunch of 20-second exposures. Maybe take five minutes of 20-second exposures. And in that amount of time, we're still collecting the same amount of light that we would uh, taking a uh, you know, five-minute exposure, but we're doing it in, in small steps. And so each one of those 20-second exposures ends up having less star trailing than if you were to take that full five-minute exposure. And, um, you know, there's some, there's some caveats to that, obviously. So your base exposures, each exposure is going to be much noisier. Mm. And so we rely on combining those multiple exposures in software in order to uh, improve the noise. And um, that's one of the things that I really love about, uh, I, I guess, the, the day and age that we live in is that we have software to do a lot of this stuff for mm-hmm. us. Absolutely. And so there are uh, a whole bunch of different um, apps out there now, um, several of which are free that allow you to take these multiple exposures and just load them into the program and it automatically realigns your images together to compensate for that, that motion of the Earth um, and, uh, and then stacks them together with, using a statistical method. Usually it's just a, it's taking the, the median value of each pixel and uh, you know, that's giving you the median color um, and that averages out the noise basically. And the result is a photograph that is usually as good or potentially better than if you had taken a single super long exposure using a star tracker. And so you're able to do that with just uh, your regular old camera and a regular old tripod. So it's, um, uh, I, I mean, that's, that's great because I haven't actually invested in an equatorial mount. So that's, that's a good thing. Uh, I, I, a couple of things I just wanted to um, discuss a bit more about the equatorial mounts is that that was one of the first disconnects I had was that people would talk about equatorial mounts and, oh, do they mean a sky tracker? Because sort of colloquially, that's what people call them. Um, so I had a look at the uh, Ioptron um, sky, uh, sky Tracker and the Skywatcher Pro. Uh, yep. Some of them come with like um, with with a Wi-Fi interface and an app now that you can sort of like adjust and so on and so forth. And it's it's uh, like you say the setup procedure looks really tedious. Um, and you know, like you got to set the elevation based on how far away you are from the equator at that that point. And then you've got to uh, align it with if you're in the northern hemisphere. There's the um, uh, Polaris, and if you're in the southern hemisphere, it's that weird collection of three, uh, sorry, four, like a bowl sort of a formation for the, for the south um, a celestial pole and all that. And if that's off, as you say, even on a long exposure, you're still going to get drift um, and star trailing. And the funny thing what, uh, that I found is that um, all the blogs said, "Oh, that's fine. Uh, you just add a another lens to uh, with a with a guide scope, right? Yeah, <laughs> and you." Uh, and I'm like, okay, let's, so here's what we're up for. <laughs> we're up for um, a, a sky tracker for you know for five six hundred dollars. Then you've got another camera and another guide scope, and then you've got a computer or some some software. They there's like a device I think from ZW called ZWI or from ZWI. I don't have it in my notes, but um, that'll that'll do some of those corrections and stuff for you. And it's like we're getting close to two thousand dollars here. Um, Ouch. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, I don't know. That's the sort of rabbit hole that we can find ourselves in for any genre of photography <laughs> yeah. um, is is like, what kind of gear can I get to solve this problem that I'm creating for myself? <laughs> and <laughs> yes, uh, 
you know, which is, I mean, I don't know. I love it. I love, I love, I love the gear. You know, I, I love the engineering that goes behind it. Mm. Um, I mean, you think about like what a camera is in general and it's, it's like this really cool combination of so many different, very advanced technologies that we have, like a modern digital camera, you know, I mean, it's a computer and it, it utilizes, you know, uh, all of these really great things. And it's just combined it all together into this like really sweet package that, uh, that just creates, you know, a fun thing to do. Mm. Um, so why wouldn't we want to try and, and, and get some more gear that gives us that same sort of feeling? Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, when you really think about like what you're, what are you trying to do with your photography and, and the real joy comes out of the actual creation of the image. And if you're spending all of your time, um, fiddling around with the setup of, you know, your equatorial mount and trying to figure out, you know, how off of the actual celestial pole that you are, even though you have it pointed at Polaris, uh, you end up losing sight of the actual objective of the night, which was actually to capture the Milky Way or, you know, whatever else you wanted to to photograph. That's it. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's why I ended up um, kind of settling more for the the, the simpler uh, approach to astrophotography. And it it ends up, I, I think, being the better way to approach this genre of photography um, because it, it doesn't have that equipment hurdle, you know, I mean, there, there are certain types of photography that you just, you need the equipment for. And I, I don't think that astrophotography is the one where the equipment is where you should start. I, re- I really think it's the technique. That's awesome. And, and, and I'm again, I'm now doubly glad that I haven't invested in one. Um, the other observation that I that I had just from my digging through this in various forums and reading, well, well, lots of forums and lots of opinions uh, on it is that uh, if you're doing something uh, because the star trailing is obviously, well, I say obviously, it is worse the more you um, you zoom. So if you've got a nice wide angle lens, then you can have 15, 20 second exposures without too much trailing depending on how wide you've got it. But if the if you try and zooming in, zooming into a, um, a deep sky object, um, uh, repositioning that constantly after you take an exposure, and you can't have an exposure more than you know one or two seconds long without it without it blurring. Uh, I can see why you'd want an equatorial mount, but for what we're right. talking about here today, yeah. there's just no. It doesn't seem to be a very good reason to do it. Yeah, that's exactly um, that. You know, that sums it up perfectly. If you're shooting on a wide angle lens, you really don't need one, and it really isn't until you start to exceed about 100 millimeters in focal length, at least with a typical, you know, APS-C or full-frame camera. Um, Anything shorter than that, you can still utilize the stacking method with just a regular old tripod and end up with a result that, uh, you know, is potentially just as satisfactory as if you had uh, spent all that extra money on a star tracker and tried to shoot, you know, using that extra equipment mm-hmm. um so yeah that, that that sums it up well short lens uh don't really need a star tracker long lens more than 100 millimeters then that's when you should probably start thinking about it um, and so that's why i usually suggest for people just getting into astrophotography 
um, start with your wide angle lens, your, you know, 18 to 55 millimeter kit lens or whatever your, your camera came with zoomed all the way out, um, actually tends to be a really great place to start at least to learn the process of capturing the night sky, learning about the, you know, exposure and, um, and just, you know, com- being comfortable, uh, being outside in the dark with your camera and and taking those exposures it's much easier on simpler gear so uh we, we you also talked about image stacking so let's, let's dive into that a little bit um so you mentioned there are a bunch of different terminologies so and it might be worth just quickly just touching on each of them to make sure it, uh, i'm on the same page so we've got um bias frames dark frames flat frames and are they really called light frames or frame frames uh yeah i I think light frames is a is a good way to characterize it. The actual frames. So the actual photo. Yeah, the actual. Yeah, the ones that contain the light. Yeah, the frame frames. Yeah. The, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So light frames are just our regular old exposures of the night sky. Um, the next ones to talk about, I think, are dark frames, and those ones are um, basically capturing the same exposure using the same settings, but with your lens cap on. Or, or the body cap on your camera. And what that does is it allows us to capture the noise profile of the camera sensor. Basically, it, it captures the pixels, the noisy pixels that sort of remain uh, consistent between each of your photographs. And every sensor has a different sort of profile of noise. And so by capturing those, um, and usually we capture a stack of those as well, we can then subtract those uh, in software. And so some of the stacking software um, available, I use one called Starry Landscape Stacker, which is available for Mac OS. Uh, and there's another one very, very similar to it called Sequator, sort of like Equator, but with an S in front of it. Okay. And uh, Sequator is available for Windows. And then there's a couple others um, out there. But th- those are the two sort of easy ones to use for landscape astrophotography. Those programs will take those dark frames and automatically recognize them and then subtract that noise pro- profile that they recorded from your light frames. So it's a really great way to further reduce the noise in your photographs. Um, and the, the interesting thing about dark frames is that um, most cameras actually have a built-in dark frame recording and subtracting function. So a, a lot of cameras will actually do this automatically and if you go into your camera's menu and you search for a setting called long exposure noise reduction, or sometimes it's just truncated to long exposure NR, yep. um, that's a setting which will do exactly that same process. Once you take a photograph, usually exceeding a certain threshold, say uh, one second long, it, the camera will automatically detect, oh, he, this photographer is taking a long exposure let's go ahead and take a dark frame uh, after we finish the light exposure so that we can subtract it later for that extra noise reduction. And uh, so a, a lot of times photographers will go out the first uh, their first time shooting astrophotography and long exposure noise reduction is usually enabled by default on most cameras. And so they'll take a 30 second exposure and then their camera will finish the exposure and then it'll sit there and it'll say busy. And it'll just say busy, busy, busy for, for another 30 seconds. And, uh, you know, a lot of photographers are like, what, you know, what the heck is going on? Why is my camera so slow? Or how come it's taking a full minute to take just the 30 second exposure? And that's because the camera is actually recording 
uh, an extra dark frame so that it can so- subtract it. Okay. And that's a that that setting is uh, is one that I usually recommend people turn off just because it can waste a lot of time. It ends up turning half your night into waiting for the dark frame to uh, to record when you could be you know repositioning for a better composition or. Uh, you know, checking your results so that you can adjust your focus or something like that. And uh, so I usually recommend disabling it so that you can take your own dark frames at the end of the night and use those later in software. Um, okay. So yeah, lights and darks, those are the the first, you know, most important, I suppose, uh, types of frames when it comes to talking about stacking for astrophotography. The other two, um, flats and, and bias frames, um, I would say if you're just approaching astrophotography, you don't really um, need to worry about too much. Um, a flat frame is simply uh, another recording of um, of an element of a photograph that we sort of don't want in the image, just like the noise for the dark frames. So a flat frame records all of the uh, sort of brightness aberrations that a lens might have. Um, and those could be things like dust specks on the sensor or uh, vignetting, basically light fall off on the edge of uh, of the image. So most lenses, especially when you're shooting wide open um, at, at the low F numbers, tend to have a fair amount of vignetting. Um, so you get these kind of dark corners on, on your image, you know, where the light just sort of uh, gradually falls off. And uh, so taking a flat frame allows you to sort of record that and then compensate for it later. And just like your, just like the dark frames, how I said that cameras have built in um, dark frame subtraction, uh, many cameras now have uh, essentially built-in flat frames, um, which is the sort of built-in lens correction settings, uh, okay. you know, in your in your DSLR. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and uh, those tend to work fairly well, but if you're really trying to, uh, to sort of stretch your images in post-processing, if you're trying to add a lot of contrast, um, and, and, you know, maybe you're dealing with, with uh, photographs that were taken with a fair amount of light pollution and you're trying to sort of adjust those out using Photoshop or Lightroom and you're, you know, stretching the image a lot to try and get the most out of it. Um, sometimes the profiles that are built into the camera uh, won't necessarily be the most accurate in terms of how it's uh, compensating for the vignetting of the lens. And so in order to take a flat frame a lot of uh, astrophotographers will put some sort of uh, translucent card in front of their lens. Yeah, maybe uh, you know a piece of uh, translucent acrylic, or some people even just use a piece of fabric, and they'll shoot a photograph uh, using a using a bright light source uh, through that diffuse piece of fabric. Uh, or you know diffuse material so that they can sort of record what a neutral gray image looks like uh, through their lens and that'll that'll give them that that perfect profile uh, to compensate with later in in post processing um, I personally actually don't take flat frames um, it's something that I think for landscape astrophotography is not uh, not super important um, 
a lot of the vignetting that you can, you end up dealing with in that sort of situation isn't as detrimental to the the final results and can actually uh, be beneficial too, just from a sort of artistic standpoint. Um, and so, you know, yeah, flat frames end up being one that I, I, I would say are in a lower priority if you're just getting into astrophotography. Um, and then the last one, uh, a bias frame is basically just a really short exposure uh, made on your camera in order to sort of capture a, a second type of noise profile for your sensor. Um, and so that one is also, uh, I would say, kind of lower on the priority for somebody just getting started on in astrophotography. Okay. So those, I think, the, are they the ones that are very, very short exposures, like one eight thousandth of a second, and you just take a whole bunch of them um, in in darkness, I think it is. Yeah. Is that, uh, am I thinking about that right? With, with no, with no, with, yeah, with the body cap on, I'm just trying to remember. Yeah, with the body cap on or with the lens cap on. Um, right. Yeah, just really, really short exposures. Um, and, and basically, you know, that differing from a, a regular dark frame, basically it's capturing like two different types of noise that uh, that our sensors end up generating the dark frames end up focusing more on the fixed pattern noise, mm-hmm. which is the noise that is very consistent between each photograph. So every sensor is sort of imperfect. Yep. And we end up having uh, like artifacts of the electronics not being completely perfect in there. And they, you know, any given camera will always have like one or two hot pixels and, you know, maybe a little kind of slightly brighter area on one part of the sensor. And, um, you know that that's what the dark frames focus on removing, and then the bias frames end up uh, focusing on on removing the other types of noise, basically like the shot noise, um, the things that are a little bit more a little bit more random with each shot. If that makes any sense, I I, I think that's a that's a simple explanation of it. But. Yeah, it's one of the more difficult ones ones to explain. I've I've sort of struggled getting my head around it, but. Um, it, it's. I, I'm also. I was very interested to to know that um, that you, for example, when you're taking your photos, that you don't actually do those ones because I you hear different opinion. Oh, well, you hear. I read different opinions about them and how important they are or aren't. So um, you know, it, it sounds very much like for the sorts of photography we're talking about, it's probably not much benefit in doing them. So I'm happy to leave them out. I guess. Yeah, I, I think um, you know, kind of going with the same uh, theme of what we we're talking about of, of sort of trying to keep things simple and, and approachable, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, well, actually, I mean, honestly, to sum it up, like the, when it comes to stacking and all these different types of, um, frames that you can take, um, very often I will just shoot regular old light frames and not even worry about anything else. Um, dark frames are useful, but sometimes the conditions or, you know, your equipment are usually good enough that you don't really need, um, to, to add that extra complexity in there. Um, so, it, you know, if you want to just like start out and, and learn these stacking techniques, um, my suggestion to most people would actually be to just focus on your regular old exposures and, and getting those dialed in first mm-hmm. um, before you add the extra element of, okay, I've learned how to stack my, my light frames together, but I'm, maybe I'm seeing a little bit more noise or some I'm having some problems with hot pixels then let let's focus on on the next outing. I'm going to record 
a whole bunch of dark frames and subtract that. And then you're like, okay, well, now I'm um, set there, but maybe I'm having uh, some vignetting. So then you can add in your flat frames. So Cool. Before I go any further, I'd like to talk to you about the sponsor for this episode, and that's ManyTrix, makers of helpful apps for the Mac, whose apps do, well, you guessed it, many tricks. There's so much to talk about for each app they make, so we're going to touch on some highlights for six of them. Usher 2, the return of the classic Usher. But now it's a full 64-bit app that works well with Catalina and Mac OS 11 Big Sur. So what is Usher? It's an amazing, powerful media management and playback app that can see your movies that you have in TV, music, and the Photos app or any library location that you'd prefer on your Mac. It can organize them for you if you like. You can create advanced playlists and sorting criteria, and you can even edit their information all from within Usher. Not only that, to celebrate the return of Usher, you can grab the Usher 2 beta from the link in the show notes, and there's a special pre-sale for it as well. Check it out. TimeSync. Track your time spent in apps or activities on your Mac the simple and easy way with TimeSync. You can pool your apps by common activities, create custom trackers for non-Mac activities, and its simple but powerful reporting features show you exactly where your time went so you can plan better and stay focused. Resolutionator. It's so simple. A drop-down menu from the menu bar and you can change the resolution of whatever display you like that's currently connected to your Mac. The best part, though, you can even set your resolution to fit more pixels than are actually there. It's very handy when you're stuck on your laptop and you need more screen real estate. Which. You should think about which as a supercharger for your command tab app switcher. If you've got three or four documents open at once in any one app, then Witch's beautifully simple pop-up lets you pick exactly the one you're looking for. You can switch between tabs as well as apps and app windows with horizontal, vertical, or menu bar switching panels with text search for switching. You can show the frontmost app in the menu bar icon with full touch bar support and much, much more. Name Mangler. You've got a whole bunch of files to rename quickly, efficiently, and in large numbers. Well, Name Mangler can help. It's designed for staged renaming sequences with powerful rejects pattern matching. Recent additions include a group by feature when making a sequence, and title case conversions can now keep their existing formatting or convert them all to lowercase based on word length. The best part is it shows you the result as you go. So if you mess anything up, just revert back to where you started and try again. Moom makes it easy to move any of your windows to whatever screen positions you want, halves, corners, edges, fractions of the screen, and then you can even save and recall your favorite window arrangements with a special auto-arrange feature when you disconnect or reconnect an external display. It has full touch bar support and keyboard integration with Adobe's apps, and it also works perfectly on an iPad operating in sidecar mode and has a sharper hexagonic look in Big Sur. It's the first app I load on a new Mac because, well, it's just awesome. Now, that's just six of their great apps. That's about half of them, and they all work on the latest version of Mac OS, Big Sur. All of these apps have free trials that you can easily download from ManyTricks, com slash pragmatic, and you can easily try them out before you buy them. They're all available from the website or through the Mac App Store. However, if you visit that URL, you can take advantage of a special discount off their very helpful apps exclusively for engineered network listeners simply use engineer 25 that's engineer the word and 25 the numbers in the discount code box in the shopping cart to receive 25 percent off 
Now, this offer is only available to Engineered Network listeners for a limited time, so take advantage of it while you can. Thank you to Many Tricks once again for sponsoring the Engineered Network. But something else on the DSLR, just specifically that it just occurred to me, we hadn't really just touched on, and it's pretty quick. Having talked about all the frames and everything, and I mean, you can actually buy special astronomy uh, specific cameras, but if we want to use our DSLR, one of the things I didn't realize until I started digging into this was that most DSLRs have got a, uh, a red light uh, filter uh, built into them, which, as I said initially, I didn't realize. And um, I'm just curious. I mean, my camera's got one, and I know that you can actually uh, pay to get them modified, and I think there might yeah. even be cameras you can buy, DSLRs that don't have it fitted. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. So what have you Right, got? yeah. Yeah, so um, pretty much every camera that you buy has um, what they call... There's a, a few different terminologies used for it. They have a filter called the UV slash IR cut filter, mm-hmm. or sometimes it's called the hot mirror. And that filter sits uh, right on top of this camera sensor. So when you look into your uh, the inside of your camera body, um, if you were to take an exposure uh, with your DSLR and actually see the sensor when the when the uh, the mirror and the shutter are open. Uh, what you're looking at is a piece of glass on top of your sensor. So the reason that it looks, you know, your sensor looks uh, uh, shiny basically is that, that 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 first thing that you're seeing there before the actual pixels of the sensor is the hot mirror filter. And that filters out uh, everything outside of the visible spectrum. So it filters out ultraviolet violet light and it also filters out infrared light. And uh, that's very helpful for daytime photography because when we shoot a photograph, we want it to look like regular life, right? We, we, to, we want to see in our photographs an image that looks like what our eyes can see. And since our eyes can't see infrared, uh, most camera manufacturers want to filter that out because it can be sort of detrimental. It can cause um, sort of like weird color shifts in certain... Uh, in certain materials, some materials reflect a lot of infrared light, and um, that'll make a uh, you know certain clothes and stuff actually look visually off in terms of their color. So the easier thing for a camera manufacturer to do is to just filter that out. And the problem with filtering out infrared light is that, uh, at least for astrophotography, is that many of the things that we see in the night sky actually emit a whole ton of infrared light. And so it can be beneficial to try and capture that extra light. Okay, so the camera, the DSLR that you use, have you had the um, that filter removed or have you, or not? No, actually I haven't. Although I'm sort of contemplating on uh, doing a conversion on one of my camera bodies. So I shoot on uh, the Sony a7S Okay. Um, I, I have the, the original Mark I version of it, um, which when it first came out was known specifically for its low light capability. Uh, Sony marketed the S version of the A7 as being the sensitivity uh, version of the camera, you know, for having right. high sensitivity yep. for specifically for shooting at, in low light. And uh, it still has, you know, the regular... UV IR cut filter in it. But I recently went out um, shooting with a camera called the Canon EOS RA. Um, and it's a version of their EOS R mirrorless camera that has that 
hot mirror or that UV IR cut sensor, or, or uh, I'm sorry, UV IR cut filter removed. And uh, it's just sort of replaced by, I, I think, an alternate filter that allows much more infrared light to pass through. And, and the results that I got from that camera were convincing enough to me in terms of what I was able to capture in relatively difficult conditions uh, to, for me to consider wanting to modify my current camera. Um, but it's okay. definitely not something that's super necessary. One of the, one of the um, things to take home about those cameras is that they, they're only going to give you a benefit with very specific objects in the night sky because um, they're only amplifying the the light gathered by these uh, what they call like red emission nebula, um, specifically right. uh, nebula that transmits uh, what they call hydrogen alpha light, which is a very specific band of light in the infrared spectrum. And um, it's fairly common in terms of, uh, you know, things that we, objects that we have in the night sky, but uh, it's it's not going to make like your camera like suddenly a million times better at capturing the Milky Way or anything. Uh, the Milky Way transmits plenty of visible light, so um, you know we can still take successful photos without that. Cool. All right, because I mean I know that you. I've, I've, I don't know, but I've I've read that there are certain places you can actually ship your DSLR to, and they'll do the modification. Some people, uh, I think I even found a how-to guide for one model of camera, and it wasn't mine, but where where they showed you how you can disassemble the camera and actually take it off. And I think you'd be a very brave person doing it yourself. But yeah, um, you I, I've, I've contemplated doing doing that myself. You know, um, I am a mechanical engineer, and you know, I love taking things apart. Sure. But looking through some of the guides that these uh, these other photographers have published online of what it takes to disassemble your camera to remove that filter mm. makes me not even want to consider it because it is a lot of parts. The cameras are like modern digital cameras are very complex things, yeah. and I think the room for error, you know, and maybe not necessarily always having the right tools is reason enough that you would might want to just send it to a uh, professional service to do. Yeah. Some of the ones in the United States are um, Life Pixel and Kalari Vision. Um, and then I think also Spencer's camera. And they all do those conversions for 200 to 300 US dollars. And, and okay. you know, I, I think that that's cheap enough that, uh, you know, it would be worth going that route instead of trying to do it yourself. Sure. I mean, but if you did it either way, either yourself or ha- even paid one of those uh, companies you suggested to do it, uh, I, I imagine you're saying goodbye to any warranty that may be left on your camera if you do Yes, that. definitely. Yeah, I yeah. think they all have a disclaimer like right on their site every time you, uh, you know, look up, you know, yeah. like this will void your warranty. Um, so that's what you'd be, you know, giving up, of course. Um, but Okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, um, all right, awesome. So, thank you for that. Um, one of the other th- um, things, just sort of quickly touch on, and uh, and then I'll sort of um, uh, move on to light pollution specifically. But uh, it seems like a simple thing, uh, and that's a tripod. And I actually had a very old um, aluminium, or as you may say, aluminium uh, tripod, and it had a um, a quick release head on it, um, a, t- a pan tilt head, but it was integrated into the into the tripod, so it was. It was right. so cheap you couldn't separate the the tripod head from the from the legs, right? So you get you get the picture. I have no idea uh, what the load carrying capacity was, 
So in a moment of, shall I say, um, electrical engineer, okay, you're a mechanical engineer, you would have told me to not do what I did. Uh, I, however, thought that'll be fine. And I put my 200, 500 millimeter lens plus my D500 on this uh, this very cheap uh, tripod. It was in the middle of the night. I was trying to take a photo of Jupiter using the tripod. And uh, in the dark, it literally just um, fell off. And I, oh, no. I know. And I actually caught it about an inch or two before it hit the uh, the tiles. Um, so I, that was just in the dark, just blind luck. I have no idea how I caught it, but I did. So um, in so doing, I broke my tripod uh, head because now I, don't, I can't trust because it's all it's all wobbly. <laughs> so one time when I was desperate to take a photo of the of just the of the Milky Way with my uh, with my new Tokina uh, lens, uh, I just got out as any good engineer does, a whole bunch of duct tape and um, I just strapped <laughs> it together. But, you know, uh, that's not a viable long-term solution. So I've ordered as part of the Black Friday sales that are going on at the moment, I grabbed um, a new set of, uh, an actual set of legs and an actual decent um, uh, tilt, uh, pan tilt head uh, that can handle, you know, five kilos in the pan tilt head and 14 kilos of the legs, which should be more than enough. But, um, I'm just curious if you had any other any specific suggestions for a tripod or a tripod head for for this sort of photography. Yeah, um, so tripods are one of those things that I think it's like the piece of equipment that photographers hate to be excited about. Right? We can we can all be excited about yeah. lenses and camera bodies um, because those things are kind of you know sexy and they you know, they, they're the things that you, you associate with actually producing the picture, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. And tripods are always thrown to the wayside. So a lot of people will go out and, uh, you know, get the cheapest tripod they can. And, uh, and yeah, that can be potentially detrimental. Uh, maybe it'll work just fine. Um, but there are definitely some things that to think about when choosing a tripod and, and things that will just make your life so much easier. Um, and, you know, it'll be, you'll be more confident you won't have to have that situation where, yeah, maybe something will break or, uh, you know, something won't be quite right and that'll either ruin your shot or potentially ruin your equipment. Mm. Um, so, uh, beyond just load capacity, right, which is an easy number for tripod manufacturers to publish, um, the other things to think about are stiffness and that's actually, the uh, sort of the most important element to what a tripod actually needs to do. It's easy to make, uh, you know, a metal device or carbon fiber device to support a camera that weighs, you know, five pounds or something like that, right? Like that's super easy to do. Um, the more difficult thing to do from a design standpoint, is to make that thing stiff in a way that with all the vibrations of handling and even the camera shutter, um, that it's not going to sort of vibrate at that natural frequency that's going to ruin your shot. Um, and there's actually a website that I, I really love. Um, there's uh, an engineer, I think he's here in the U.S., he has a blog called The Center, <clears throat> excuse me, he has a blog called the Center Column, mm-hmm. and uh, if you if you look this up, um, the Center Column is basically just a giant ranking 
uh, like ranked list of all of the kind of top tripods in terms of their stiffness to weight ratio, basically. Um, he actually... Well, I'm just looking at this site now, and it's um, I like some of the, the titles, Weight Ratings Are Meaningless. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, David. Uh, I don't know David's last name, but David of the Center Column. Yeah. Great website. Um, going there, it's been just sort of really enlightening in, in terms of uh, things to think about when you're approaching uh, purchasing of a tripod. And I, I like that he puts priority different priorities, so you can sort of sort the tripod lists on his website by uh, the priorities that you might have. And so, so maybe you would prioritize your the weight of the tripod over uh, over necessarily the stiffness, and so you can sort of um, see how they stack up relative to other tripods within a certain weight class. So he has sort of like a travel tripod class and then uh you know a full-size tripod class of rankings um and uh he, he does some pretty cool tests um some basically there, there's a couple different uh there's a t- couple different types of stiffness that he tests one of them is and the most the most important one uh, and where most tripods sort of fail at is in torsional stiffness yeah. so that's torsion about the vertical axis mm-hmm. and um so he he does these these uh you know really involved tests using accelerometers and uh, weights and and uh basically tests the stiffness of these tripods um, and he quantifies all of it there so you can see um it's a very very helpful website so that's one of the first uh places that i go in terms of like looking for uh, a tripod and sort of seeing, you know, what he's found in terms of what are the best tripods out there. Nice. Uh, and he's tried, he's tried to, to test, uh, a, a lot of the more mainstream affordable tripods. And then he's also tested a lot of the like really expensive, you know, thousand dollar Gitzo uh, systems. Um, and so you can sort of see how certain things stack up. Um, cool. I so, kind of wish I had have known about that site before I, went and bought mine actually <laughs> it hasn't <laughs> arrived yet i'm not sure i'm going to be returning it or not but i'm going to read that that's thank you for that it's a really uh lots of good stuff there just just having a quick look at it now while you were talking it's yeah thank you very good yeah so um beyond uh beyond that um i like to think about a tripod in in terms of its weight primarily um you know beyond finding one that's like okay i can do the weight rating of you know my gear can support that and it's fairly stiff at least according to david of the center column uh, the other thing that I, I really like to think about is uh do i want to carry this thing around with me uh you know up a mountainside or you know in the dark and uh there is a definite limit to where your gear ends up being more of a detriment if it's too heavy. Um, you know, you can have the stiffest, highest weight rated tripod, but that tripod's probably going to be too heavy. So it's one of those things where you have to sort of find the happy medium and, you know, find one that you're willing to carry with you. And I always like to say, if it's one that you're not willing to bring with you on every photography outing, because it's potentially like too big, then it's not the right tripod. It, It should always be the piece of gear that 
you will always want to have with you, just like you'd have like to have your favorite lens or your favorite camera body. You should always have your favorite tripod with you. Um, so that's something that you should think about when you're when you're approaching the purchase of a tripod. Awesome. All right, cool. Um, so um, I'd like to just uh, shift gears slightly. And um, before we get to light pollution, I also uh, thought we should talk about focus. Um, and I don't mean necessarily of topic. I meant <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. the focus on the lens. And I had this... Um, uh, did did all this this research and and learned about this uh, focusing tool called a Batonov mask, um, which I I kind of actually I think it's very cool that this is only a relatively recent thing. Uh, apparently, Pavel Batonov came up with this in two thousand and five, so it's really only fifteen years old as an idea. I kind of like that, and he was an amateur photographer, and um, and it sort of it shows three lines that cross at a center point when you're in perfect focus and. The thing that I, I was reading about this was that it's supposed to only really work because it, it, well, it blocks a lot of light, at least the traditional large filters, the solid filters and the, all the little slots in them, sort of a funny pattern and it blocks a lot of the light. And I, I read that it's only going to work at 100 millimeter uh, effective focal length uh, or greater. So it couldn't work on wide angle lenses. But then when I was looking through your uh, site, um, you have uh, the Sharp Star. Yeah. So, yeah, can you tell me a little uh, bit about that? Because it's uh, very cool. I mean, exactly the thinking, you know, that you went through about, you know, oh, you can only use this Batonov mask at 100 millimeters or greater. I was like, I, I thought the same thing. And I was like, man, this would be a really great tool if we could somehow use it on our regular camera lenses. And mm. I tried making my own sort of traditional Batonov mask um, using, you know, laser etched dark, you know, plastic sheeting. And, um, and I came up with the original sharp star design, which was essentially a very, very fine lined Botanov mask. And, um, that worked fairly well for lenses down to about 35 millimeters, but it depended on the aperture. It had to be a fast lens. Um, and, so using some of the funds that I was able to get from selling this first version of the Sharp Star, um, that helped us develop the Sharp Star 2, which is um, designed specifically for use on wider angle lenses, much shorter focal lengths. So it can go down to about 14 millimeters, and uh, it gives you that really nice star pattern uh, of a typical Batonov mask and uh, just makes focusing that much simpler. It gives you sort of a visual positive affirmation of uh, sort of critical focus. And, um, you know, that's a tool that, that I'm definitely proud of, you know, Mm. in terms of, of uh, developing and, and, you know, we've sold thousands of them um, around the world to, to, probably uh, about 60 different countries around the world. Because, I mean, I can't find anything quite like it because uh, the table that you have on the website talks about uh, the as you're um, going down like uh, like 16 millimeters, 15, you know, down 11 and, and so on, and then the, uh, the different uh, 
uh, f-stops, so aperture sizes. So uh, it shows you where it can work and where it's sort of borderline and then where it just won't work. And I haven't found anything else that goes anywhere near as low um, in terms of wide angle and uh, and relative aperture as the the Sharp Star too. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely it took a lot of trial and error uh, in developing it, and um, you know, really honestly, the the harder thing uh, about developing it was just figuring out the manufacturing method for it, um, which luckily turned out to be pretty simple, um, but. Yeah, I don't know. It's a tool that I would definitely recommend for people if they're struggling with focus. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if your listeners are interested in checking it out and they're getting into astrophotography and they want to try it out, mm-hmm. um, we do have a like a 100% guarantee on it. That's basically, it's a sort of help in the situation where, you know, maybe your camera and lens combination aren't, you know, sort of... Uh, super happy with this sharp star too, you know, certain cameras have darker live view feeds or, you know, lenses have, you know, different, uh, certain lenses, especially with lower F numbers or I'm sorry, with higher F numbers, um, will potentially have more issues like being able to see the diffraction pattern, uh, of the sharp star too. So we want to make sure that anybody who receives it is at least satisfied with how it's working. So, uh, you know, that's why we, put that guarantee on there and so no questions asked we'll uh do a return or refund for anybody who who does have an issue with it um and you know most of the time it works out really great and uh people tend to really love that tool so cool so this thing it's it's essentially just a it's a square piece of well glass or perspex i'm not sure what the material is i assume glass and it just yeah we use an optical acrylic Oh, okay. So I'm just okay, and it slides into um, a standard box mount. I'm not sure what the terminology is. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a square filter holder, um, right. and yeah, that basically uh, it's a square filter system. A lot of photographers like using neutral density filters, you know, either graduated or um, or you know, really dark neutral density filters, so that they can do long exposures during the daytime. And uh, that re- usually requires one of these square filter holders, uh, which is basically just uh, you know, a little bracket that fits on the front of your lens and it has a slot for uh, a filter. And usually these filters are either uh, 100 by 100 millimeters uh, square and usually about 2 millimeters thick. And so our, our SharpStar 2 filter is designed to slot into one of those standard filter holders. There's a million different brands yeah. um, uh, of, of those holder systems, but they all are sort of cross-compatible as long as they're uh, similarly sized. Awesome. Well, um, I haven't invested in one yet, but I'm eyeing one off. Don't worry. It's on, the, it's on, my, it's on my wish list. I have to talk about light pollution and it's you know when we first um you know started emailing i sort of mentioned oh hey i'm in a i'm in a bottle 4 area um it's one of those things that i just sort of oh yeah the bottle scale right it's uh, it's just like it's that's astronomy talk and i'm yeah i'm now i'm speaking astronomy talk and i had the the light pollution map uh, app on my phone and i had a look at it and I said yep you're in a bottle 4 area i didn't actually dig into the detail of how a bottle four or three, two, one, or yeah, the scale from one to nine. I didn't actually dig into what each of those definitions was until I was just preparing the last of the show notes for this episode. 
And I was quite surprised to find that kind of like the Batonoff mask, uh, the Bortle scale was only like as a, a published by John E. Bortle in 2001. So it's not even a 20-year-old thing. So it's also relatively recent. Um, and it seems like it's very much, I mean, it's, it's uh, some people say, oh, it's a quantitative scale. But if you look at some of the definitions about what you can see at different levels, I'm not entirely sure quantitative is probably the right way of describing it. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? About yeah, it? I think the the Bortle scale is um, kind of a difficult, uh, like when you, when you think about the conditions that you actually encounter at night, mm. um, the Bortle, Bortle scale tries to put a single number on a specific location for how the light pollution will affect, you know, your seeing capability. And one of the things that you'll find at night is that when you're out shooting in a suburban area or even a rural area, light pollution is not like an even distribution across the sky. No. It's very often, uh, you know, worse in one direction, usually looking toward a city. You know, if there's a city within 100 miles, um, it's going to emit light that reflects off the atmosphere. and um, so the Bortle scale is like kind of, I would say, just like kind of a rough measure of, you know, how good the overall seeing will be, but it's not necessarily going to be the, you know, end all, you know, super precise, yeah, quanti- uh, quantitization of, yeah. you know, the amount of light pollution that's in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually find that some of the tools that I use, they don't even necessarily use, specifically use a Bortle scale. They'll use the same sort of rainbow uh, colors where the, the best seeing is, you know, is illustrated as being you know, very, very dark with a black or gray color. And then the worst seeing is highlighted in bright orange or red or even white. And um, sometimes they'll use a little bit more um, graduations in the scale than just the one through nine of the Bortle scale. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you're at, when you're planning a, an astrophotography shoot, you're pretty much just going to look for the darkest spot that you can get to within a reasonable amount of time of your home or, mm, or yeah. you know, uh, or, or whatnot. And so I, I don't necessarily think it's like uh, any reason to... Uh, choose one place over another if if you're looking at the difference between like a Bortle 4 versus a Bortle 5 because other things like the direction that you're facing during the night or the time of year or even the uh, the weather conditions can affect how that light pollution is actually showing up in your shots. Um, yeah. I'm glad you I'm glad you pointed that out because it's sort of it's something that I that occurred to me when I looked at it because if I, if I if I draw a a, a cross on a, on on a you know, on a map and stand on it, and I look straight up. Um, the map may say, according to all the the light the light pollution guide, like you're in a Bortle four zone. But the fact is that if you turn south, you know that's the direction of uh, like Brisbane, the largest city near me. And um, there's this, you know, like well, it, it is a nice glow unless you're trying to take astrophoto- uh, astrophotos. Um, but other than that, you turn around to the north, and there's practically nothing. It's it's not like pitch black, but it certainly is much, much darker. So it'd be okay in turn facing northwards. So northwards, you're looking at the equivalent of a bottle three, maybe a bottle two, but if you turn south, then maybe that's the bottle four. So it's like there's no, like an X on a map doesn't really tell the story. And that that was sort of the conclusion I'd reached as well. 
Um, yeah. Which is, yeah. yeah, it's, 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 and if I really wanted to look at uh, the map, and of course I've just, I've done this because I, you know, for the hell of it, and I've said, well, where's the nearest thing on the map that says this is a Bordel 3 area? Um, so that's 45 minutes drive from where I live. A Bordel 2 area is about one and a half hours from where I live, and a Bordel 1 is about three and a half hours drive. So, um, it's a decent hike. Um, I mean, you could do it if you were keen, and I suspect at some point I'm going to, but for the moment, I have not yet. I'm just going to stick to my backyard for a bit. Yeah, I, I'd usually suggest um, for people who who really want to step up their astrophotography when they've gotten comfortable, um, you know, maybe shooting in their suburban neighborhood, and they're like, okay, I, I understand at least, you know, how my camera operates at night. I've gotten down my focus technique, and I figured out, you know, the exposure that I, I like using. Um, the next step really is to go out to a nice dark place. And, uh, you know, obviously depending on where you live in the world, um, that's going to be, uh, potentially one of the bigger challenges of astrophotography is going out and finding that nice dark spot. And, um, you know, like where I am in Chicago, uh, there isn't a whole lot around here that gets much better than about Bortle 4. It's very difficult to get better than that. And even the areas on a map that may be sort of marked as Bortle 3 or 4, um, their adjacency to much brighter areas is uh, much more detrimental than you would think. And it, there tends to be just a really strong glow on the horizon around pretty much anywhere that you are in Illinois, no, no matter how low the portal rating is. Um, and some of the best shooting in the United States ends up being in the, the Western states where uh, most cities are very far apart and there's lots of, you know, big deserts and, and unpopulated areas. And those are the places that I would recommend people go, um, you know, find your, your state uh, or, you know, your country's, national parks, state parks, any sort of like public land or, you know, camping area out in, uh, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, out in the outback, I guess is what you would say, yes. right? Yeah, out, out in the sticks in the outback. Yeah, and that's that really is, I think that's like the hardest, that's the biggest challenge with astrophotography beyond just simple technique is going out and, and actually going to a place that's nice and dark. Um, deserts tend to be a great place to go if you can just because of the other the other factors that that brings to night photography um having moisture in the air can always be uh potentially detrimental you know i mean especially if it clouds over uh but yeah deserts will give you the best sort of seeing conditions for being able to photograph the night sky so i usually think that that's the thing that's going to make the biggest difference in terms of the result that you get in your astrophotography is actually going to a, a really dark place. <laughs> that's a funny way you phrased that. Um, uh, okay. So here's the thing. Um, I, 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 I absolutely agree. I have not done that myself. And um, the nearest desert for me is a decent hike. It's probably more like a five or six hours drive. Actually, probably even further than that. But um, uh, contrary to popular belief, Australia is not entirely desert. Uh, but never mind that. Uh, it's okay. 
So let's assume, uh, and this is one of the things that, of course, I, I've, I've sort of started digging into some more, and that is let's assume you can't get in the car because of, uh, you know, limited range, limited budget, because obviously the further you go, then you've got to stay there if you don't mind camping. That's one thing if you're allowed to camp there. Uh, so a whole bunch of other little barriers. So let's say you're stuck at home and you're in a bottle four or bottle five zone. I've been reading up on light pollution filters. So um, the thing that I thought was interesting when I started digging into this is that there's a lot of talk about low pressure sodium and particularly filtering out 589 nanometer light. But one of the things that I'm, I really wanted to ask you was, I mean, my understanding is because, um, you know, being, a, being an electrical engineer, I know that uh, LPS uh, lights are being phased out. They're being replaced yeah, by absolutely yeah i mean led lights are just they are more efficient they're more reliable and of course they're a lot more directive so i mean you're always going to get light bouncing and refracting off of you know different objects in a city but um i mean how how effective are light pollution filters really and is it just are they just for low pressure sodium for, for that wavelength or are there other kinds you can get they're uh becoming increasingly less effective because of leds basically right that's the uh that's the gist of it Um, I was afraid you'd say that. Yeah. Um, So sodium lamps uh, are still around. I mean, it's it's one of those things that's definitely changing um, and uh, I think probably eventually may not uh, be solvable, I guess, with a light pollution filter. Um, Ultimately, a light pollution filter never really, you know, it never really makes uh, a night and day difference, right? Like it's not going to suddenly turn off all the light pollution. Um, There's always going to be something there because, you know, these lamps don't emit like a perfect, uh, you know, a a perfect band of light. And there's always uh, some other source, you know, of light that's going to end up in your shot. And, um, but at the end of the day, a light pollution filter can make uh, a difference enough to give you a little bit of edge in terms of contrast in your photographs. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just like that one extra little, you know, tool that you could add, you know, to your, to your kit. And, um, you know, I I would definitely say that they're not, you know, magically going to make your photographs better, but it's one of those things that it's sort of like taking, taking the time to take some dark frames or something to reduce uh, the noise from your sensor. Um, it, it's like adding like that extra little bit to mm-hmm. your shot. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend uh, a light pollution filter for somebody just starting out. Um, but if you are finding that you're enjoying shooting in you know, your backyard or something like that and you want to be able to filter out uh, some light. If you are seeing an orange glow in your shots, if if you know if you're actually seeing kind of like a muddy looking sky in your shots, and you want to filter that out, then that's where a light pollution filter will help. Um, but it's sort of situational. I found that some of the places that we've been shooting fairly often uh, have changed over the years. Um, it used to be that, uh, like one of our favorite places in California, um, called Trona Pinnacles, which is this area with these uh, kind of rock spire, uh, formations, uh, used to have like a really strong sodium, uh, vapor lamp, orange glow that would cast itself both on the rock formations that you were shooting at 
as well as uh, you, you would see it in the background uh, of most of the shots when facing south towards the Milky Way. And uh, it gave it like a certain characteristic. And over the years, uh, each year, that orange glow has become whiter and whiter uh, just because of municipalities changing their street lamps to LEDs. Um, there is something to be said, though, about uh, uh, the possibility that a lot of these LEDs might potentially be um, also replaced with uh, LEDs that are filtered into that sort of same wavelength as the sodium lamps. Um, a lot of people are finding that they don't like the really white looking light from LED lamps. Um, they can be a little bit more disruptive uh, at night uh, for a number of different reasons. Um, but I don't know. Like, Sorry, I was, I was, yeah, you're right. I think I was reading an article a few years ago about um, the, uh, the wavelengths of those LED lights uh, disrupt, being more disruptive to sleep patterns and interfering with like nocturnal animals more so than the, the low-pressure sodiums, if I remember right. correctly. Right, yeah. Yeah, and that's like that's sort of like going along with a lot of the things that we're seeing, and even like our everyday gadgets, like you know uh, our phone screens now automatically adjust its sort of like white balance in order to become warmer uh, looking, uh, yeah. which is actually like a you know, it'll become more yellow at in the evening, right? Like uh, iPhones do this, and some Android phones now. Um, do this, and and one of the reasons that manufacturers are doing that is sort of to make your screen a little less disruptive to your sleep patterns, mm. um, and uh, you know that ends up translating exactly the same way to these LED lights um, that they're using for street lamps now, um, and yeah, I don't even I don't know looking at looking at a, a bright white light, you know, like a daytime temperature colored light at at night um really is kind of disruptive it doesn't feel right i guess you know just from yeah. a just from a real internal you know i don't know maybe it maybe it has to, something to do with how uh humans you know lived off of uh being able to have a fire at night you know to keep yeah. ourselves alive in the cold and and having that warm glow uh, at night is so much more reassuring than having this you know really bright white light source so yeah i think there might be something to that i mean if you think about it there's the fire and the camp the campfire idea and then of course that progressed to candles which is you know the same kind of wavelengths and it's um yeah and then suddenly we're in modern technology and we've got uh lights with a completely different uh color spectrum uh that in some respects mimics more of what the sun would produce and and, and our bodies are just like well hang on a minute is it day is it night i'm now i'm confused uh so it's kind of i think there is something to that but uh, I, I, and some people might be more effective than others, but just from the photography perspective, I'm, I'm just curious, do you ever use a light pollution filter anymore or have you sort of given up on them? No, I do. I still use them, especially when I'm shooting in a, in a rural, uh, or I'm sorry, in a suburban area, okay. um, or anywhere where the, the direction that I'm facing is expected to have like some sort of light dome, either from a city or a nearby town. Um, I do like to use a light pollution filter to, sort of have that little extra edge uh in the shot you know it it definitely can reduce the sort of uh i don't know sort of like a haze that you would get over your uh sure. over your yep. photos oh yeah and it it gives you a little bit more contrast um <clears throat> but i find myself shooting without them every once in a while too if i'm in a very uh dark 
place, then oftentimes I won't shoot with one. Um, usually uh, that's because I don't want to necessarily filter out light that can potentially be advantageous to my yeah. shot. Um, and and sometimes that's a little bit of light falling on the foreground. You know, when you're shooting these wide-angle um, landscape astrophotos, the foreground is actually the more difficult thing to capture. It can be, especially when you're in a very dark area. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, if you want something other than just a silhouette of a tree, and you want to actually have some some visible detail in the foreground, um, you actually kind of want a little bit of light. And you know, luckily shooting at night, even in the darkest places, like, you know, Bortle 1 uh, areas, um, there's always a little bit of glow in the sky. Um, and that usually uh, makes a big difference on what you can see in the foreground, especially if you're using a technique like stacking, where you're, where you're able to combine multiple exposures together uh, to reduce the, the potential noise problems that you would have in a, in a really dark foreground. Um, and that's one of the things that I think uh, I, I like most about going to these uh, really dark places is actually realizing that you can see pretty well even in a, even in a Bortle One area at night. Uh, it's it's amazing how bright the sky actually is and how you can actually see you know things in the foreground. You know, once your eyes adjust, um, mm. even just the brightness of the sky uh, itself, you know, not necessarily the stars itself, but the the sky will actually, uh, light up the foreground. Um, and that's actually a cool concept, um, which I, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't know if we were going to come to, um, and that's the idea of air glow and air glow is sort of, uh, you could think of it as sort of like nature's light pollution. Um, and it's a really, uh, it's really interesting phenomenon. It's, basically uh, a glow in the sky caused by uh, several different uh, factors. It could be uh, atomic oxygen um, or other molecules in the upper atmosphere uh, releasing uh, their energy from the day. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's basically the, the de-excitation of uh, their electrons. Okay. Uh, from you know residual energy from the day, from solar energy from the day, uh, sort of blasting off a photon, and mm-hmm. it can usually be uh, kind of a strange uh, green glow. I think uh, atomic oxygen is green um, when it uh, when it emits light, and uh, you'll you'll get these like kind of weird uh, cloud green cloud like patterns uh, in your shot, and it can be a really neat uh, phenomenon to have in your photographs. And that's a that's a a thing that happens everywhere around the world. It doesn't matter where you are. Um, you know, assuming you're in a dark enough place, uh, you can usually capture air glow, and it, it can sometimes look a little bit like uh, shooting the aurora, although much much dimmer uh, in terms of brightness. Um, okay. So that, that's kind of a neat thing to to discover. You know going out to a shooting in a really dark place cool so that 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 will be happening up at the um stratospheric level of of the atmosphere up the higher higher altitudes i imagine is that right or yeah i believe so i think it's it's like really really high uh okay. really really high altitude and Interesting. uh yeah it, it's one of those things that you only really get to see in a super dark place and yeah. it's the underlying reason why the night sky is never pure black between the stars when we 
out in a very, very dark area. There's always, you know, kind of a glow to it. And it's, it's actually just the atmosphere itself having, you know, emitting its own light, which is kind of cool. That is very cool. That's, that's something I wasn't aware of. That's uh, interesting. Uh, one of the things you also brought up just briefly was uh, the lighting of uh, foreground subjects. And that is something I just wanted to touch on was uh, the idea of light painting, which when I first when I first heard that, it sort of conjures a very interesting image in your imagination before you actually think it through as to what it might mean. Um, so uh, I just, I'm just curious, do you do light painting in, and, and how do you do that exactly? I do it very rarely, um, mostly because I like to, I, I personally like to capture a, I like to capture a night photograph that looks like night. Right. That, that has sort of that, that dark, you know, I don't know, atmosphere to it. And as soon as you add in an artificial light source, there's always something that's a little bit off. Sure. All right. So there's uh, there's just one more thing I, I really wanted to talk about, um, and and I probably should have talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, was just the the lens selection for Milky Way photography, and and the the balance between how wide is extra wide. You know, you you're saying, for example, um, so extolling the virtues of a kit lens, which you know, if you've got a, a full frame uh, camera and you've got an eighteen millimeter on the uh, on the wide end, then that's that that's probably pretty good. Uh, for me, with a DX, um, eighteen millimeters just wasn't enough, so I needed to go down lower. And um, but obviously, had I had a full frame, probably would have been fine. Then, uh, then again, you could also say, "Well, look, I've got a thirty-five millimeter f one point eight, so it's uh, it's a pretty fast lens, and uh, I could just do panorama uh, stitching, and I could do two or three different positions and and stitch them together uh, to try and get sort of better better resolution without having to buy uh, another lens or a wider lens. I mean, I could have done the same thing on on my my camera, for example. Um, so." I guess I'm just I'm curious what your thoughts are. If, um, I mean, would you do you lean more towards an ultra wide, or uh, do you prefer a panorama stitching? So as I've gotten um, more and more experience over the years with astrophotography, I've tended to shift towards longer and longer lenses. And I know this is probably going to end up in me buying a telescope at one point, um, but uh, I usually. I would recommend a similar progression, I suppose, in somebody getting into astrophotography. Start with a wide angle, um, just in terms of of you know how complex it is to sh- to to shoot with it. A wide angle lens makes things easy. Um, the Milky Way is a really big thing, right? It's like it, it's all around us at night, and uh, it takes up a really large portion of the sky when it's visible. When you know when you can actually see the galactic plane. And using a wide-angle lens will be the easiest way to capture that. Um, now, yeah, that said, uh, oftentimes you know people will find that you know, maybe they don't have the widest lens, like a, yeah, an eighteen millimeter um, on uh, on a DX or APS-C camera is twenty-eight millimeter equivalent. That you know that's wide angle, but it's not it's not like a huge field of view. And uh, sometimes the the cheapest next upgrade that photographers will get for their camera is like a nifty 50, right? Like a 50 millimeter 1.8. Those lenses tend to be really affordable. Some of them Mm -hmm. you can get for less than $100. And they're fast, right? They give you that that really large aperture, a really low F number. 
and uh, they tend to be very sharp. And uh, one of the problems with a with a 50 millimeter 1.8 is like on an APS-C camera, that's a really narrow field of view. That's uh, more of a portrait lens, uh, you know, that you would you would take photos, uh, you know, in a studio with. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that people shy away from using a lens like that. And 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 panorama stitching is definitely the technique that you can utilize to take really successful, you know, really great photographs of the Milky Way using one of these longer lenses, like a 50 millimeter. Um, I now have found that my favorite lens to shoot the Milky Way on is actually a 105 millimeter lens. I have a Sigma 105 millimeter f1.4. So it's very fast, low F number, long lens. Um, And I'm shooting that on a full frame camera. Um, And one of the problems with shooting with that is that you don't really capture a whole lot of the night sky. So I have to shoot these like really large multi-row panoramas, basically shooting a big mosaic of photographs in order to capture that really wide angle field of view that I want. Um, And ultimately, I guess that's what I think people should think about is how much work do you want to put into creating these photographs? Um, If you want to just be able to, you know, go out and take a few snapshots and come out with a Milky Way photo um, with fairly little effort, then shooting on a wide-angle lens is, is going to be the much easier, uh, much easier path to take. Sure. You know, shoot with your 18 millimeter, or like in your case, you know, uh, a wide-angle zoom that can uh, go down to 11 millimeters, mm-hmm. and that's going to be the easiest approach. And so that's usually what I suggest for people to do. So most of the tutorials that we've written on Lonely Spec tend to recommend, uh, yeah, the kit lens or a wide-angle zoom, um, something that has that really large field of view because that's going to be the easiest way to capture that really big Milky Way in the sky. Okay. Um, I was going to say in uh, Australia where, uh, you know, in, in the southern hemisphere, at certain times of the year, the Milky Way uh, galactic center, the really bright core of our galaxy, ends up being really high overhead. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in the night sky in the Southern Hemisphere. And so um, that's another reason to shoot on a wide-angle lens is because you want to capture both that foreground and the Milky Way, but the Milky Way is up at, you know, higher than 45 degrees. You're mm-hmm. probably going to want a fairly wide-angle lens. And, uh, yeah, to that point, yeah, I mean, lucky me living in the Southern Hemisphere for that for that at least. But, I mean, it's... Um uh, it's it's also not quite Milky Way season for me at the moment. I mean, if I get up at two in the morning, um, I'll get it as it comes up in the east. Uh, but it's I'm I'm sort of waiting. I think the next really good chance will be in January, and hopefully my new tripod gets here by then. I'm just not game to do any um shooting with a with a dodgy tripod at the moment. Um, but just getting back to the sti- uh, to the panorama stitching, you mentioned some other yeah. software, but previously uh, that you were using for um, light stacking. Is that the same start, same software you use for the panoramas, or is that sep- done separately? No, that's done separately. Um, so the stacking software that I had mentioned, uh, Starry Landscape Stacker and Sequator, both of those uh, pieces of software are made almost specifically for the landscape astrophoto with a wide angle lens. Uh, something where you have a foreground in there and uh, you have the sky uh, 
and between you know your shots of uh of the of the sky tends to move you know from the earth rotation so it's made specifically to to process that specific situation um but for the panorama stitching i actually use a dedicated panorama stitching software called pt gui uh which stands okay. for panorama tools GUI or Panorama Tools graphic user interface, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and uh, that's a mouthful, but it's a really great Panorama stitching software, and it's made specifically for stitching together large numbers of images um, into a panorama. Uh, it can do full three sixties if you if that's what you're looking for, um, and. Uh, it's the only piece of software that I've been able to find that can handle uh, really, really large panoramas. So since I like shooting on a hundred millimeter, um, I'll often find that my panoramas have anywhere between, uh, say, forty individual frames to up to two hundred and fifty individual frames, um, wow. and that's a lot of data to process and you know and there's a lot of things to think about when you're trying to stitch those together a lot of problems for one over the course of of shooting the sky is rotating your sky is is moving relative to the earth from the earth rotation so you you can have misalignments along the horizon um, and uh, you know all kinds of other little factors go into trying to properly align and then blend all of these images together. And uh, PTGUI is definitely the best piece of software for doing that. There are a few others out there um, potentially worth uh, checking out. There's Microsoft ICE, which I think stands for Image Imaging Composite Editor or something like that. Okay. Um, I think that one's free. And um, there was a really great piece of software um, that uh, is no longer being produced called Auto Pano Giga, um, okay. but the, the company that was behind Auto Pano Giga ended up getting purchased by GoPro, um, hmm. and GoPro eventually phased out the development of that uh, piece of software, which uh, is a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Um, but I, I I don't think you can buy that piece of software anymore. It, it was very very good, um, but right now the PT GUI is the best tool for doing those types of panorama stitches. Awesome. Okay. Um, so the only other thing that I just wanted to quickly mention, um, well, just to quickly review on it, we've talked about a whole bunch of different um, software, not wishing to recap all of those. But um, for, for me personally, you know, I, I obviously I, I use photo pills all the time, um, particularly so I can get a good idea of when the next time the Milky Way is going to be at the right angle at the right time and the galactic core is going to be at uh, maximum brightness and so on. Uh, and which is something that now I've got a decent, well, I say a decent lens. I could do it with what I've got currently got, but I want to use the uh, ultra wide. So, and I'm waiting for my new tripod. So, uh, I love photo pills. Um, I use the light pollution map, but there's a few different, um, apps out there for that. Did you have a, a preference or a pick for anything for, for that sort of purpose? Um, I just use a website called dark sight finder. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's the one that I usually go to. There's a whole bunch of different ones out there. I mean, if you just Google light pollution map, you can find them. Um, that's the one I use. It, it has, uh, uh, you know, graduations similar to the Bortle scale on it. They're a little Mm bit, um, a little bit finer, I guess, in terms of graduation. Uh, but 
it, you know, it works basically the same. And yeah, that's often a first step is sort of like, okay, let's look at the light pollution map. Where is a dark place near me? And then when you find like a rough area of like, okay, it's kind of dark over in this direction. Now, where is a place that I'm actually allowed to be at night or that I can camp at? And, you know, you go from there. Um, the only other app I just wanted to quickly mention, I use um, Sky Guide, which is just, you know, the cheat sheet for wherever all the constellations are. And whilst I'm gradually getting better at learning where everything is, um, it's one of those things that when I was younger, I, I, I you know, scout, I was in scouts for a little while. And so I, I sort of know some of the basics and some of the constellations, but it's been um, just getting back in, getting back into astronomy and, and, and now learning astrophotography. Uh, I'm, I'm learning the, the night sky a bit better, but um, to be fair, I think it's fantastic that you've, there are apps out there like, uh, like um, Starwalk, Skywalk, but there's a whole bunch of different ones or similar names. Um, and you put on augmented reality, hold the phone up to the sky, and it'll just show you the backdrop. And it's it's pretty it's pretty accurate. And yeah, it, it really helps. Amazing, absolutely amazing tools. Um, sky Guide is probably the one that I would recommend for people on iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely has the best, uh, you know, like photorealistic representation in the Milky Way. Yes. Um, and uh, but yeah, there are other apps too. I use one for Android called Stellarium. Oh yes, and uh, Stellarium's it, it, it's it's all right. It's pretty good, um, you know, definitely useful. And it has the sort of AR pointing where you can uh, you know figure out wh- where everything is and where it will be uh, at any given time of night. If I remember correctly, I think Stellarium is also a cross-platform uh, application. I think you can get it for the Mac and for Windows as a desktop application. If I remember correctly, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. you can it, even even Linux. Actually, it's available for Linux. Yeah, that is that is very cool. Well, um, Ian, I have to say, I think we could probably keep going, but we should probably stop um, <laughs> at some point. <laughs> there's there's just there's so much to learn and 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 so much uh, so many ways you can sort of like improve and 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 I. I'm I'm so grateful for your time and your insight into this. If you want to talk more about this, uh, you can reach me on the Fediverse at Chigi at engineered dot space uh, on Twitter at uh, John Chigi or on Word or the network at engineered underscore net. I'd personally like to thank Many Tricks for sponsoring the Engineered Network once again. If you're looking for some Mac software that can do many tricks, remember to specifically visit this URL ManyTricks all one word dot com slash pragmatic for more information about their amazingly useful apps. Uh, if you're enjoying Pragmatic and want to support the show, you can by supporting our sponsor or via Patreon at patreon.com slash johnchigi or one word. Uh, a big thank you to all of our patrons. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, John Whitlow, Kevin Kosh, Oliver Steele, Leslie Law Chan, Hafthor, and Shane O'Neill. And an extra special thank you to our gold producer, known only as R. Our patron rewards include a named thank you on the website, a named thank you at the end of episodes, access to raw detailed show notes, as well as ad-free, higher quality releases of every episode. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, there's lots of great rewards. And uh, beyond that, it's all really, really appreciated. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with uh, Ian, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, mate? Uh, first and foremost, I guess I'd uh, recommend just visiting our website, lonelyspec.com. Uh, that's the website that my wife Diana and I built and have been uh, improving and adding on to over the years. Uh, there's tons of different uh, tutorials, and we you know we talk about gear a lot on there, which I love, and uh, tools that you you can use to help you with your night photography. So lonelyspec.com 
And there you'll find links to our uh, Instagram and uh, YouTube as well. Uh, that's instagram.com slash inorman for Ian Norman. Uh, and then uh, YouTube-wise, it's youtube.com slash lonelyspec. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the, probably the best way to find find me. And we have a contact form on the website. Uh, if you ever have a question about astrophotography, uh, feel free to just shoot us an email and uh, we'll do our best to respond. Fantastic. Yeah, I've learned so much um, from Lonely Spec and, uh, and also um, from your time today. I really do appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and uh, just wanted to say a special thank you to our final thank you to our patrons and uh, an extra special thank you to Ian for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, John. This was a lot of fun. 